HMP. This is indeed Talk the Talk. I'm Bill Newman. And I'm Buzz Eisenberg. And we welcome back to our studio today uh, Jen Mirapol and Robert Mirapol. Jen Mirapol is the executive director of the Rosenberg Fund for Children, and Robert, Robbie Mirapol, is the founder. By way of disclosure, I should note that these are two very old friends, and I have served on the board of directors of the Rosenberg Fund for Children since its inception some, I think, 30 years ago. Robert Mirapol, Robbie, you are the founder of the Rosenberg Fund for Children, and you and Jen are here today <clears throat> because we are coming up on the 70th anniversary of the execution of your parents. I would appreciate it if you would share that story, at least a synopsis of that story of their case, and then we're going to talk about how the 70th anniversary will be commemorated and what is happening with regard to the case itself. We'll do all that during this hour, but let's start with the story of the arrest, the trial, and the execution of your parents. Robbie? Well, my name is Robert Mirapol, but I was born Robert Rosenberg. I'm the younger son of Julius and Ethel Rosenberg, who were charged with conspiracy to commit espionage um, in 1950, and tried in 1951, and executed in 1953. Uh, now, although the charge was conspiracy, uh, they, in the press, they were actually charged for quote, giving the secret of the atomic bomb to the Soviet Union. Um, and they protested their innocence, and in the years that have followed, uh, we have learned that while my father was involved in espionage to help the Soviet Union defeat the Nazis during the 1940s, uh, he was not an atomic spy, and my mother was essentially collateral damage, but more on that later. Uh, what my parents were engaged in and the activity that got them arrested or got my father arrested was really fighting fascism in the 1940s. And that has, you know, we've come full circle. Now we have fascism re rearing its ugly head once again as the 70th anniversary of their execution approaches. Well, tell us a bit more about that. They were charged with conspiracy. That's an agreement to do something as opposed to actually doing anything. And yet they were condemned and executed in the press for delivering the secret of the atomic bomb, which is something they never did, never had the capability of done to do. And in hindsight, looks like an absurd charge, but nonetheless was accepted as truth at the time. Well, you know, the atomic bomb in 1951 was like science fiction. Uh, the idea that, you know, you could be like James Bond and you could take a microchip and it would have the secret and you could plug it into something and all of a sudden you could build your own atomic bomb. As one of the atomic scientists said years later, it's an industry, not a recipe. But people didn't understand that at the time. And conspiracy charges are easier to obtain, because all you have to do, or, or conviction for conspiracy are easy to obtain, because all you have to do is prove that one, that two or more people agreed to do something illegal and took one act in furtherance of that. Well, that's all oral. It's all, there's no real evidence. It's all about credibility. And this was the McCarthy period, when communists were assumed to be spies. 
So they were in an impossible situation. Yeah, Buzz. No. Buzz. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> let me uh, let me let me uh, ask you this: uh, the Rosenberg Fund for Children. Uh, what is it, and why did you found it? I'm, it, it provides for the educational and emotional needs of our, the children of targeted activists uh, in the United States. And, and I actually kind of want to let Jen, who now runs the show, say a bit more about that. Okay, Jen Mirapol, you're the executive director of the Rosenberg Fund for Children. You followed in the footsteps of your father, who is here. Tell us about the Rosenberg Fund. Sure, happy to do so. Um, so the Rosenberg Fund for Children, the RFC, as my dad says, we're a public nonprofit foundation. We make grants for educational and emotional support for children of targeted progressive activists and targeted activist youth, young people who faced harassment for their own organizing efforts. When we talk about educational or emotional support, we're talking about therapy, summer camps, music, art, dance programs. And when we think about who are targeted progressive activists today, it's folks organizing for civil rights, against police brutality, around environmental issues for reproductive justice and access, um, LGBTQ issues. That's really the community that we're funding today, along with a bunch of other folks engaged in a variety of progressive activities um, and efforts. So, you know, journalists trying to report the truth, folks pushing back against, as my dad said, increased fascism, whether that's neo-Nazis, whether that's white power, whether that's a whole amalgamation of what you're seeing kind of weaponized on the right aimed at folks trying to basically create a world that they want that's a little better than the one we have at the moment for themselves, their kids, and the future generations. That's what the RFC does. The RFC supports, in general, the children of activists whose families have suffered because of their activism. You mentioned journalists. Could you give some other examples of activists who have suffered because of their activism and who has imposed the burdens on these families? Are we talking about the government? Are we talking about private entities? Tell us a bit more about that. Sure. It's really a range um, for, you know, I'm thinking about folks who will highlight as we think about the 70th anniversary. Um, so let's see. There's a young activist who got really aware of and concerned about um, environment, the environment and the damage that we're doing, kind of irreparable damage to our world, and decided he wanted to do a climate strike. He wanted to stand out and protest what was happening with global warming and what he calls global heating, asked for permission from his school to be excused to do that, was told no, even though those similar requests had been honored in the past and was expelled. Um, so from that, for a young person to an individual in the Pacific Northwest organizing against police brutality in the aftermath of George Floyd's murder, who found uh, themselves and their family targeted both by police, really unhappy with the organizing they were doing to hold local cops accountable, as well as being listed on a number of white power websites and facing real harassment and threats against the entire family, including their young son. So that's kind of some sense of the range that 
in some cases, it's definitely government oppression, it's egregious charges, it's individuals engaged in peaceful protest facing, you know, like we saw recently um, with folks in Atlanta, folks protesting the plans to build a major new police complex who are themselves are then arrested on and charged with a number of different counts. So it could be something like that, or it could be an individual who's organizing against a local employer and the community is the one that's targeting the family. They're having real pushback and threats from neighbors because that's their employer and that's their source of income in that community. Jen Mirapol, you are the executive director of the Rosenberg Fund for Children. Robbie Mirapol, you're the founder. I have a question for both of you based on what Jen just said, but let me turn back to you, Robbie. Why did you want to found the Rosenberg Fund for Children? What is it in your experience as the younger son of the Rosenbergs who were executed by the United States government that made you want to create this foundation? Well, being the children of Julius and Ethel Rosenberg in the early 1950s, uh, that is the only way I can describe it for people familiar with more modern cases is it'd be like being the children of Osama bin Laden in the United States if we he had been brought, brought to trial here. And so we had a rough time as children, and what we discovered was that uh, if there were community support for us that enabled us to go to special camps, special schools, uh, it really made a difference. Uh, and that's what the Rosenberg Fund for Children does. It tries to connect people uh, up with those, uh, with that kind of community of support, and and I think we've been pretty successful at it. And you know, one of the things that that as the seventieth anniversary approaches, that I really uh, that we're really pushing is to try to have these stories, the stories of our beneficiaries, told. And that's what we're going to do in a couple of programs that are about to come up. Okay, so let's turn back to Jen. What are the programs? What is the commemoration for the 70th anniversary of the execution of your grandparents? So we, in thinking about planning this program um, about a year ago, kind of wrestled with, as a staff, as a board, as a community, what theme felt most compelling to us. And we really came up with the idea of the Rosenberg case 70 years later, fighting fascism then and now, thinking about those echoes that my dad mentioned of what were key components of the case for my grandparents and what has reappeared in very different ways in different circumstances and often folks from very different backgrounds, but a similar consistent theme with a lot of the families that we work with today. So what are you doing? We are doing two virtual programs. So it's basically a film screening um, online of a new film we created that tells that story that looks at my grandparents' case and then looks at sharing some beneficiary stories over the 30-plus years of the RFC. And we're doing that tomorrow evening, Wednesday, June 14th, and then a second showing on Sunday, June 25th. So Wednesday afternoon, Sunday or sorry, Wednesday evening, Sunday afternoon. And we're basically going to show premiere that film and then do a Q&A, a talk back with my dad and I after the film and take questions from our community about what they've just seen and the work that we're doing now. Can you tell us a bit more about the film? Sure. So we have uh, Angela Davis and 
Russell Schultz III reading from my grandparents' prison correspondence. We then have my dad and uncle sharing some information about themselves. We then really move into focusing on our current beneficiary stories with some art. Art has always been kind of an important way of sharing the story, sharing um, the ways that protest movements kind of think about and imagine the world that they're working to create. So we have Martina Spada, local poet, um, sharing a poem that he wrote about the case. And we have Abby Van Mugen, a graphic artist, doing some remarkable imagery to go with some of the stories and enhance them. The film is how long? The program will be about how long? So the film is about 40 minutes. Then we'll leave ourselves close to half an hour for the question and answer. So about a 75-minute program. And that's Wednesday, June 4th and Sunday, June 25th. And how do people sign up for this? How, how do we, get, I guess, virtually, do we get tickets? What do we do? So all of the information is on our website. It's at RFC, as in RosenbergFundChildren.org. And the banner on our website has a link to more information and how to sign up for tickets. So that's RFC.org. Uh, tickets are available kind of on a donate what you'd like, sign up, reserve your space. And then there also are what we're calling community access tickets. So we don't want anyone turned away and not able to attend the program because of the cost involved. So there's free tickets available as well. In our next segment, we're going to talk about fascism in the United States today and how the Rosenberg case resonates so ominously today in the United States. But I'd like to ask you both one question before that. And that is, and I'm always struck by this, which is how you so calmly talk about the United States government executing, in your case, Robbie, your parents, in your case, Jen, your grandparents. And I'd like to ask you both, how do you do that, Robbie? Well, I think you get used to it. Uh, you know, you get used to it, and children are extremely resilient. You give them any support, and they bounce back. And that's been my experience with it. Uh, it's, you know, I think a lot of people can't imagine uh, being, you know, like me because it's the first time they've encountered this kind of thing. But, you know, I've been me all my life. So uh, I'm used to it. Jen? Yeah, and I would say my dad's model, you know, both my younger sister and I grew up seeing that. We knew you know, folks often ask me when I first learned about my grandparents, and I can't answer them. I don't know. It simply was something that I always knew in the same way that I know my name is Jen. And I learned it young enough and in a comfortable enough way that I knew it. I built onto that knowledge as I got older, but it wasn't a traumatic, scarring experience to learn about it. And I do think that being a generation removed means that that was a whole lot easier for my sister and cousins and I because we had our immediate family around us sharing this story and family history in a very supportive way. Before we break, for those of our listeners who want to be part of, who want to participate, who want to see, who want to experience this film and this conversation with you and your dad, one more time, where and how do they do that? Go to the RFC website, rfc.org, and click on the Get Tickets link, and you'll find additional information, and we hope you can join us. We'll be right back. More with Jen Mirapol and Robbie Mirapol right after this. 
More Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. Do you know what's happening this Friday at 9 a.m.? Is this week Shop Friday season's passes to Look Park? Correct. They go on sale this Friday at 9 a.m. Visit beautiful Look Park in Florence all year long with your season pass. Mini golf, the water spray park, the steamer train, playgrounds, ice cream, a whole summer of outdoor family fun. Get ready to save 30% beginning Friday at 9 a.m. The Shop 30 store at whmp.com. What's cooking at River Valley Co-op? Here's avid eater, grocery shopper, and co-op member, Bill Newman. Local farms are welcoming spring to the co-op. Asparagus popping up and ready to eat in bunches. In the co-op meat department, local chicken from Reed Farm, house-made brats and sausage, everything to kick off grilling season. In the co-op cheese department, welcome the maple season with maple-washed Willoughby, a delicious local cheese washed with Vermont maple liqueur. River Valley Co-op, wild about local. Everyone is welcome. Some people make insurance sound so simple. You know, just call 1-800-INSURANCE. We'll save you money. Sounds pretty simple. So you call, give your credit card, and you're insured. They're hoping you'll never call back. Hoping you'll never have a claim. Because that's when insurance isn't so simple. In fact, it can get outright complicated. So many insurance claims have some little thing, or not so little thing, that ends up with a difference in what the insurance company thinks they owe you and what you think you should get. Maybe that nice person who signed you up at 1-800-INSURANCE will work it out for you. Or make Whalen Insurance your local insurance agent. When we sign you up, don't be surprised if our rates are lower than the 800 number. We'll get every available discount for you. We'll get you the right coverage. And if you ever need help with a claim, our door is open. Whalen Insurance. Call us for a quote. 586-1000. In partnership with Mafre Insurance. Whalen Insurance. Local people. Local service. Local insurance. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. As we approach the 70th anniversary of the execution of Julius and Ethel Rosenberg, we continue our conversation with Jen Mirapol, who is the executive director of the Rosenberg Fund for Children, and Robert Mirapol, her dad, who is the founder of the RFC. I'd like to turn to developments in the case which may sound a little peculiar to some people. This is a case that is 70 years old. What do you mean developments in the case? But in fact, it has taken more than 70 years and will take more than 70 years for the truth of what the government did to your parents to come out. So, Robbie, there have been developments in the case. Tell us what they are. Yeah, and putting those developments within the sort of modern context of, of a growing threat of fascism, one of the, you know, democ- what I like to say is that Democracy and secrecy is like oil and water. They don't mix well. Um, And so one of the ways to fight fascism is to bring out the truth by by getting rid of, uh, to an extent, secrecy. And what you discover, the reason there's new things about my parents' case, and and I admit that my brother and I uh, didn't, we're kind of slow on the trigger of this. Uh, We started asking for all the government's files to be released in our parents' case in the 1970s. And we won a precedent-setting Freedom of Information Act lawsuit that took until 1985 uh, but it, and released 300,000 previously secret pages. But it turns out that there are more. We didn't realize it. Way back when, in, in 1995, 
another agency which we hadn't sued, the National Security Agency, because we didn't realize they had material, released what they called the Venona transcriptions, which were all these uh, intercepted Soviet cables that, um, that were encrypted and decrypted, and they got little snippets of information, and the NSA said this in part led to my parents' arrest. Well, uh, one of the things that was tantalizing about that release in 1995 was that there was a memo that accompanied these transcriptions in which the chief decryptor said, well, in view of delicate health, Ethel Rosenberg does not work, and interpreted the word does not work meant does not do espionage work. So that's a tantalizing memo. But we thought the NSA well, it does had show released... That, it does show that the government knew when it executed your mother that she didn't have anything to do with anything. Well, that, that is where it leads you to. But what we didn't realize then, and I can fault myself because it took us another 20 years, uh, was that there have to be other memos. There couldn't just be one memo about this. So in July of 2022, we filed an administrative request of the NSA and the, nationals, uh, the National Archives, where a lot of these files are now held because they're so old. Um, for them to release it. And what we found out in December when they wrote us back was that there's up to, they claim, up to 500,000 pages in over 200 boxes that are not thoroughly indexed at the National Archives that could contain information related to our request and that it will take years just to review this, let alone reduce it, uh, re release it. I, I know a guy who can look through boxes and pick out <laughs> stuff pretty quickly. Maybe yeah, we can well, get him on. Sorry. Well, that's, I mean, that's the irony of the situation. So that's where we're at at this point. Wait a second, are, wait, there are 500,000 pieces of paper in boxes that they they owe you, but they haven't given to you? Well, that's the thing. There may only be a few hundred thousand. I mean, there may only be a few hundred pages that they owe us. But what they do is they take a box, they put 3,000 pages in it with different files. One of them is classified. They stamp the whole box classified. So... Of the, we, you, so everybody has to painstakingly look through every single file in every single box in order to determine what's there related to Ethel Rosenberg. So it could be just a few dozen pages, but it can take them years to discover it. This is absurd. This stuff is over 70 years old. Some of it's approaching 80 years old. Just release it. When we talk about overclassification and what's going on right now, if, 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 NSA employees are spending hours and hours and hours of taxpayer money looking through these worthless files when they could be actually dealing with classification reform and letting the public know what's actually going on. Uh, that's the kind of thing we are calling for, and that's really the new development in the case. So at the risk of being Pollyannish about this, there will be release, there will be releases, but w when? Well, I'm 76 and my brother is 80. And we are in, we've, you know, what we're saying is we want to see what's here before we die. Uh, and essentially, you know, just like justice delayed is justice denied. Well, you can say that information delayed is information denied. So that's the, that's the climate that we're now in. Um, and I also want to say, uh, being here, being Northampton residents, that uh, we are getting assistance with this process from Jim McGovern's, our congressman's uh, office, and we are we are very lucky 
to have Congressman McGovern representing us so we can fight for freedom of information together. How astounding is it to you that 70 years after the execution of your parents, the government still will not release the information around why they were targeted and why they were executed? I mean, how can that be? It's, it's, I think for those of us who have not lived with this our entire life, we hear that story and we say, really? That's possible? Yeah, and I think, you know, it, it's even more absurd than that. I, I don't know how to respond almost because uh, it's not like the custodians of these files even know what's there. I mean, when you think about it, these files were created in the 1940s, uh, most of them. And none of the people who were custodians of them were even born. So I think what we're dealing with here is a bureaucratic prerogative, an attitude of these are our files, and that is fundamentally wrong because they're the people's files. They're not the bureaucrats' files. I'd just like to piggyback Robbie Mirapol. I represented for 12 years, I represented Guantanamo detainees. Mm -hmm. And for nine of those years, every weekend, I had to go to Washington and go to a secure facility and look through boxes that were marked classified and that had New York Times articles in them. And that had stuff that in no way could possibly be considered, and yet it was. So we had to painstakingly do exactly what you're talking about, and I would, that's why I'm bald like you. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and, you know, and for me, I mean, the absurdity of it all as we approach the 70th anniversary uh, uh, couldn't be stronger. And so this is our, and it's our opportunity. It's an opportunity to take the moment when there's been so much talk about classification and say, you know what, if something is 70 years old, you don't need to look through it. Just release it. Let the chips fall where they may. I mean, when we started our Freedom of Information Act lawsuit and people said to us, well, there might, this is the government material. There might be stuff in there showing your parents are guilty. We said, yeah, we don't believe that's the case, but if it is, let the chips fall where they may because freedom of information is more important than our particular take on the case. You're here. And what your FOIA cases have divulged, what has come out, is really quite extraordinary, including uh, your father's involvement, not in atomic espionage, but in being a, uh, someone who did convey, try to convey information uh, uh, that was helpful to defeating fascism in World War II and helping the Soviet Union in that regard, but that your mother did not even have a code name. I mean, it's extraordinary. The government said, we're going to squeeze your mother for information. Have them turn on your father. She'll have to break. They'll break the Rosenbergs. No one's going to go and be executed who's innocent and didn't do anything. And so, well, that's the story. They executed someone. The government executed a woman they knew was innocent. I mean, and, that's, and that's actually one of the themes of the program that's coming up. The naming of names, that the reason my parents were executed, and the FBI said this afterward, we didn't want them to die, we wanted them to talk. The whole purpose of the, um, the death sentence was to uh, basically coercive, was to hold my mother hostage to it and to force people to name names. And one of the things that the RFC stands for is supporting people who are targeted today and you know, I'm thinking of, of the theme at the end of the program uh, where Jen is actually narrating and she talks about not naming names. Uh, so we do come full circle. 
One more time, Jen Mirapol, how can we participate? How can we see the film and participate in the program? Go to the RFC's website, uh, rfc.org, and click on the Get Ticket link. You'll find information about the program and be able to reserve your spot so you can hopefully join us on June 14th or June 25th. June 14th, tomorrow? Tomorrow, Wednesday, June 14th at 7 p.m. Eastern, or Sunday, June 25th at 4 p.m. Jen Mirapol, Robbie Mirapol, thank you both so very much. Thank, thank you. you. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. The current state of housing in Northampton is the topic of discussion at a meeting at City Council Chambers tonight. The meeting is the launch of the Municipal Engagement Initiative, which was created to work with residents to change the conversation and support local efforts in favor of more affordable housing. According to the agenda posted by Northampton Housing Partnership, the group plans to share data about the current state of housing in Northampton and some of the barriers that building new housing faces in the city. The meeting begins at 6 p.m. and will also allow participants through Zoom. For the first time in 15 years, Holyoke Police Department is expected to have 92 patrol officers, up from 82 officers typically. Holyoke Mayor Josh Garcia said the police department is expanding to address a persistent understaffing issue, which has forced officers to work excessive amounts of overtime and were outlined in the recent audit of the police department. We've put a lot of attention and focus on scaling up our police department while also taking care of other needs that were identified in that report as far as whether if it's capital related, training related. Again, I think that by the fall time is going to start feeling very, very different as far as quality of life issues are concerned. The mayor said the police department is also working to fix their record keeping and complaint filing systems to make it easier for citizens to file complaints. When you start taking it apart, there's much more than what's being reported, and it just becomes a little sensational, in my opinion. The mayor said the city will continue to assess and improve its police and public safety departments, and that complicated problems can take time to solve. For today, it'll be mostly cloudy. Chance for showers this morning, high 78 to 82. Tonight, partly cloudy. Overnight lows, 54 to 58. And the outlook for Wednesday, partly sunny. Chance for afternoon showers and thunderstorms. Highs in the upper 70s. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Adam Stremko on 101.5 WHMP. This news update in Spanish is brought to you by our friends at Holyoke Media. Yo soy Johan Rashi Vega con la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media. El presidente Joe Biden vetó el miércoles una legislación que habría cancelado su plan para perdonar la deuda estudiantil. Es una vergüenza para las familias trabajadoras de todo el país que los legisladores continúen con este intento sin precedentes de negar un alivio crítico a millones de sus propios electores, dijo Biden en un comunicado al anunciar su veto. A pesar del veto, el plan de Biden aún no es seguro. La Corte Suprema de los Estados Unidos, dominada por una mayoría conservadora está revisando un desafío legal que podría eliminar el programa. Se espera una decisión este verano. Si se promulga, el plan de Biden perdonaría hasta 20 mil dólares en deuda de préstamos estudiantiles federales para prestatarios que ganen menos de 125 mil dólares por año. Los pagos de préstamos estudiantiles se detuvieron al comienzo de la pandemia de COVID-19. Sin embargo, se reanudarán en agosto para cualquier persona cuya deuda no sea eliminada por el plan de Biden. 
En otras informaciones, el ex vicepresidente Mike Pence, que sirvió lealmente a Donald Trump durante cuatro años, criticó el miércoles a su ex jefe por el ataque al Capitolio de Estados Unidos en 2021 mientras lanzaba su campaña para la nominación presidencial republicana de 2024. Pence emitió su condena más contundente hasta la fecha del papel de Trump en el ataque del 6 de enero, cuando los partidarios del entonces presidente irrumpieron en el Congreso de los Estados Unidos para tratar de evitar que los legisladores certificaran la victoria electoral de Joe Biden. Creo que cualquiera que se ponga por encima de la Constitución nunca debería ser presidente de Estados Unidos, y cualquiera que le pidiera a alguien más que lo pusiera por encima de la Constitución nunca debería volver a ser presidente de Estados Unidos, dijo Pence en un discurso en Iowa que da inicio a la competencia por la nominación republicana el próximo año. Yo soy Johan Rashi Vega y esta fue la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media a través de WHMP. This news update in Spanish has been brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media. Oh goodness, they knew them all from Boston to Dubuque including Willie, Mickey, and the Duke. And this is, in fact, talking Baseball with the Duke, Duke Goldman. Thank you so much for being with us today, Duke. I'd like to ask you about your view, Duke Goldman, for our listeners who are joining us for the first time with Duke. He is a baseball historian. He is a member of the Society of American Baseball Research, one of the stars of Sabre, and an author and an expert on the Negro Leagues. And Duke is an encyclopedia of baseball facts and insights. I'd like to ask you, Duke, in particular, we're 60-plus games into the season, a season filled with new rules and an old sport. What's your view? My view is that things are changing in baseball, and change is good quite often. Uh, we know that uh, the pace of game is faster, and that's a good thing. Baseball games have gotten too, too slow. So now they're, they're, they're moving along. Um, we're also seeing a changing of the guard in baseball. So right now, um, arguably, of the top five teams in baseball, only one of them is a dominant team from the last few years, the Atlanta Braves. The best team in baseball is the Tampa Bay Rays. Nobody would dispute that. They have by far the best record. And they've been good over the last few years, but not nearly this good. They have a pitcher named Shane McClanahan, who already has 10 wins, who is on pace to win 23 games. We, we thought we'd seen the last 20-game winner, but I don't think we have. Um, and then we have the Arizona Diamondbacks, the Texas Rangers, and the Baltimore Orioles, all teams who've been terrible the last few years and they are four of the five best teams in the league and with the exception of atlanta all of those teams have the lowest payrolls or nearly the lowest payrolls yes. in the sports those teams that have spent hundreds of millions of dollars the yankees for example the los angeles dodgers for example the and new, the york, new york, york mets, mets for example Where are they? They're in the middle of the pack at best. Well, How, what happened to their million-dollar investments? You know, right now, in June, arguably the worst team in baseball, or close to it, is the New York Mets, the one with the highest payroll. And the best team in baseball in the last week is the Oakland Athletics, who started out winning 12 games and losing 50, and since then have won six in a row. And last night, 
the worst team in baseball, the Athletics, beat the best team in baseball, Tampa Bay Rays. And that's what's great about baseball. How often does the worst team in football beat the best team in football? Very, very rarely. In baseball, it happens every night or almost every night. Let's go back to the rules and the pace of the game. There's a pitch clock. There are penalties for not pitching the ball quickly enough, for batters stepping out. There's one timeout for, per batter, for, per at-bat. All of this is making the game faster, but more importantly, the action happens more quickly. One pitch after the next, after the next, after a hit, after a run, after a, uh, a stolen base. I mean, it's, it's a more exciting game to watch, and it's over in a reasonable amount of time. Most of the time, I will tell you this, I went to City Field. Uh, to watch the aforementioned New York Mets. Watch the, the terrible New York Mets drop another game. And, um, you know, it's different live. I kind of miss the old pace live mm. because when you go to a game live, you're sitting around, you're soaking in the atmosphere, you're drinking one of your favorite adult beverages, you're having conversations, and you want the pace to be slow until something exciting happens and then you bore in. I felt like, you know, everything's on the clock. It's moving, it's moving, it's moving. And it, it kind of, I'll get used to it, but it's not quite the same. On TV, on the other hand, the way most of us watch it, it's nice for the game to move along. It's nice that it's not, you know, we don't have these four-hour, I think the Red Sox and Yankees the other day finished a game in two and a half hours. When did that last happen? Two games in a row. Yeah. I, I am interested in, in this aspect of the game moving along, and that is whether or not, this rule is unfair to older pitchers because they don't have time. If you're going to take the ball and throw it 100 miles an hour, your body requires a few seconds to recover in between pitches. And for older pitchers, they may not have the time to recover, and we may end up with older pitchers, well, having shortened careers because they're going to hurt their arms. What's your, what do you think about that? Uh, I think that a major reason the Mets aren't doing well right now is they've got two first ballot Hall of Famers, Max Scherzer and Justin Verlander, who are respectively 39 and 40 years old, and they're getting, they're getting lit up. Um, and they're injured pitching. And it has something to do with, without a doubt, um, that they're old and they're, they're, they need more time to recover. And, you know, this was one of the, if you will, unintended consequences of these rules, but it means the players need to be younger or else they need to find a way to get little breaks. You know, they're going to have to, they, 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 there are five uh, times that, um, you know, a, a catcher or a manager can go to the mound. They're going to start using those up to give pitchers breaks, if anything. The, the other aspect that, that I find interesting is I love trying to figure out what the next pitch should be. Somebody, you know, somebody's a pull hitter and you, you want to really uh, think about, well, should this person be pitched inside or outside? And there was a collaboration between the catcher and the pitcher that took some time to figure out and, and to get messages from the dugout about how hot this guy is and that sort of stuff. You can't do that with this pitch clock. No, no. So the game has changed and people are going to have to adjust to that. And it's, it's a necessary change, I think. Well, except there is now a way in which the catcher communicates with the pitcher electronically by tapping Correct. a device on his knee, pitch this kind of pitch in right. this place. So right. that communication is going on. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, it is. But, it, you know, there isn't as much time in between. There, there, just there isn't, isn't as much talking about it. Like, is that the right pitch? Right, right. And, you know, a, every change leads to other changes, and some of them are good and some of them are not good. I think almost everybody universally, do people agree, 
This needed to be done. On the other hand, the man on second base, where we start in extra innings with a man on second base, how did he get there? That didn't need to be done, I don't think. And on ESPN's Sunday Night Baseball, I believe it was Carl Ravage who mentioned a great new term for calling that man. He said that man should be called Manfred's Man. Because? Rob Manfred, the commissioner, mandated that we should start extra innings with a man on second base. And so now we've got people scoring runs who shouldn't be getting credit for it. And my view is they need to do something in the record books because all of those runs should be accounted for and they should be put on the the books as Manfred runs. You know, they shouldn't be a guy who made the last out in the inning and starts the next inning out on second base shouldn't be getting credit for a run score. The Cincinnati Reds have a new great rookie named Ellie De La Cruz. He's 21 years old. He's lightning fast and they think he's going to be great. How many Manfred runs is he going to score in the course of his 20 year career? Because they're going to put him in as a pinch runner for well, that or, you know, just by accident, if he makes the last out of an inning, he'll be on second base. He's going to score. Yeah, they might use him as a pinch runner if he's not in the game. And, you know, someday he may pass Ricky Henderson in runs and 50 of those runs may be Manfred runs. I'm no Manfred fan, but the owners approve that change. Well, and the players, too. They all want it. Um, That doesn't mean it's the right thing. It's stupid. I'm sorry, but it's dumb. And if they're going to use it, start it in the 12th inning when most games would be over and it's rare. There's no reason to start in the 10th inning. Yes, they bring in pitchers all the time and, you know, their pitching staffs can't have 20 inning games. I get it now. So do it in the 12th inning and it won't happen that often. Will they do that? I don't know. Yeah, it doesn't sound that likely, but I am interested in why you object so vehemently to this, Duke Goldman, because it was tried out in the minor leagues for a number of years to see how it worked before it was incorporated into the game from Major League Baseball at its highest levels. Uh, It does shorten the game, and every team has the same advantage. Both teams start with a guy on second base, and some teams manage to score that run, and some teams don't. It's, well, it's... It's even Stephen. I mean, every both teams get that get that advantage. Ooh, ooh. So stupidity reigns on both sides, and they have an <laughs> equal opportunity to do score a run that shouldn't be scored. And we do elect presidents who started on third base. Right? Yeah, we do. You know, so I don't know. From my standpoint, it's unnecessary. The problem with baseball has now been rectified. Nine inning games are faster. So why do we need to have starting in the tenth inning a guy who who didn't get there on his own speed? There's no need for it. Yes, like I said, maybe later because they, the pitching staffs can't do 20 innings. I don't see any reason why right in the 10th inning we need to have a gimmicky play. And, and the other thing is baseball record books are like accounting books. And now you have entries that don't make any sense. It's like somebody's cooked the books because where did that person come from? Why are they getting a run when they didn't get there on their on their own steam? Why are there runs being accounted for that are fake runs? Right, and it does make confusing for those of us who look at this, the box score for the next day saying, where is that run? Uh, and how come there's n- the number of earned runs does not match up with the runs scored? And life got more confusing because of that rule. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to continue our conversation with Duke Goldman. We're going to say, how about those Red Sox? Hey, we'll be right back. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. Here comes- 
You could be one word away from $1,000. It's a grand in the hand on WHMP. Listen each weekday for the $1,000 keyword at around 815, 1215, and 415. When you hear the keyword, just go to WHMP.com and enter it for a shot at $1,000. You have until midnight to enter the keyword of the day. It's a grand in the hand on WHMP. Complete rules and details on WHMP.com. How many great books have you read? What's the next great book you'll read? Find it at the Northampton Outdoor Book Fair this Saturday. Ten bookstores, including Broadside. Thousands of books. A book browsing paradise. Yes, there's fiction. Yes, there's poetry. And children's books. First editions. Limited editions. Art books. Signed books. For a book lover, it's an afternoon in book heaven. Join Broadside and ten more bookstores for the Northampton Outdoor Book Fair in the plaza behind Thorns this Saturday, June 17th, 11 to 6. What's the next great book you'll read? Your expectations. What are your expectations for your new home addition? Construct Associates in Northampton can show families just like yours a world of possibilities. From antique to ultra-modern, kitchen and bath, additions, design and construction, residential and commercial, renovation and restoration. Construct Associates in Northampton and your imagination. Expanded and released by serious craftsmen doing quality work. Visit their website right now at constructassociates.com. Find local news and local talk for the Valley. It is critical that the investigation is not limited to federal violations of gender discrimination, but includes the alleged allegations of corruption, nepotism, abuse of power, and use of position to aid Ms. Cunningham's personal business. These allegations actually require an investigation by a different body than a Title IX investigator. Where the heart of the Pioneer Valley lives. 1015 and 1400 WHMP. News, information, and the arts. We're talking baseball, Klazuski, Campanella, talking baseball, the man and Bobby Fella, the scooter, the barber, and the nuke. They knew them all from Boston to Dubuque, especially Willie, Mickey. And we are, in fact, talking baseball with the Duke, Duke Goldman. We continue our conversation because I need to know from Duke, who is a star in Sabre, the Society of American Baseball Research, and a baseball historian and an expert on the Negro Leagues and an author. How about those Red Sox? And what's happening in Boston? Duke, well, help, help our listeners who are uh, prematurely in mourning. And who don't know that there's a cloud in the studio right now. Well, the Red Sox are mediocre. Having said that, they did beat the Yankees two out of three. Well, we'll get to the why the Yankees <laughs> stink, but we'll get to that in just a minute. But first, why do the Red Sox stink? Because they don't have anybody all that exciting or good or galvanizing. The, the most exciting player on the team, I'm sorry, it's not Devers. It's Kike Hernandez. And... Yet Kike is not quite good enough to, you know, he's not a lightning rod. He makes some great plays. He occasionally hits a home run. He, he, he's fast. But he's hitting 250. They don't have those players anymore. You know, it started with, with Mookie Betts leaving town, as far as I'm concerned. And they haven't replaced them. They, they have a few young, talented players, but they specialize in bringing up first basemen with, baseman with huge holes in their swing. Tristan Cassis is the latest one. Um, you know, the, Chris Sale has his annual injury. I mean, they just don't have it. And 
they're mediocre. They've got a decent manager. They have some talent. Rafael Devers will hit you 30 home runs every year, and they're going to finish in the middle of the pack. Well, they're a 500 team now, and you said they were a 500 team, and 500 team is not going to be good enough to get to the playoffs in the American League East. Yes. On the other hand, I also said the Mets were going to win the World Series this yes, year. Yes, you did. <laughs> and I said the Dodgers, and the Dodgers are still a good team. But they are. I want to go back to what Bill was talking about, what you started talking about, which is some teams don't have the kind of abundant talent that you're saying the Red Sox need in order to have a better record. Uh, I remember Joe Morgan when the Red Sox were incredibly, they were more abundant, and then they won 19 out of 21, and then they ended up going to the playoffs, but a playoff game. But uh, the Tampa Bay... Tampa Bay doesn't have uh, what we think of as like this notable talent base, but they still win. Because they don't have what you're referring to as notable talent. They have abundant talent. They have young, incipient talent. They have players that most people don't know about yet. Wander Franco, and some people know Randy Rosarena because he had a great playoff a couple of years ago, but, and Shane McClanahan, and you know, guys that, that people don't know about but are, are right in the prime of their career, and they're good, and they're all good, and they have good relief pitching and good defense. You know, they're just an all-around good team. So what is it that Tampa Bay does to secure this young talent? The, everyone has scouts. Everyone has research departments. I mean, every team has all of those things. And yet this team in a terrible stadium with a tiny payroll is outperforming 29 other teams. How? Because they've got smart management that realized we have a terrible stadium. We don't have a lot of resources. We're going to build and build and build. And we're going to concentrate all our energies and efforts on acquiring the best and most efficient ways of, of signing players instead of wasting money on 10-year contracts on people who by year three are no longer worth the money you're paying them. They, they, they're operating under constraint, and it's freeing them. It's enabling them to do well. Okay. Makes me have to ask you this question. The Yankees spent hundreds of millions of dollars on John Carlos Stanton, uh, one of the worst contracts ever given to a player. Now, he had hit 59 homes in the National League, and he looked like a superstar, and he's been hurt for five years, and he's never performed. On the other hand, the Yankees also gave a, what, nine-year contract to Aaron Judge. How do you feel about that? Well, Aaron Judge is truly a phenomenon. He's an incredible player. If anybody is worth that money, it's Aaron Judge. The problem with Judge is, of course, he's injury-prone because he plays the game all out, and so things happen to him. He's also 31. But unlike Stanton, I think Judge is still going to be performing in his late 30s, and, and he's, he's the centerpiece of the team. Now, I might remind you, Stanton was signed by Miami. They decided in their infinite wisdom to give him a 13-year contract. So the Yankees assumed that contract, and yeah, he's still got six, seven, eight years. I don't know how many left, and he gets injured too, and he's more or less a one-dimensional player, whereas Judge is a multi. Judge is a five-tool player. And when you, when you say five tools, what does that mean? It means he can run. It means he can throw. It means that he can field. It means he can hit, and he can hit for power. He does everything. He's a Willie Mays type of ball player, a lot bigger. But when you watch Judge, I saw Judge play minor league ball before he became famous, and I could tell right away this guy had it. Yeah, his swing is unbelievable. Bill, when you say the worst contract ever for Stanton, what about Chris Sale? Pretty bad contract. Okay, for those Red Sox fans who are still with us, 
talk about Chris Sale. Chris Sale is the example of someone who just, his body can't stand it. You know, he pitched deep into games for several years with the White Sox. The Red with a Sox. phenomenal with a phenomenal fastball. Phenomenal fastball, but he's thin. He's tall and angular and thin. And every time he throws, and he has a throwing motion that puts strain on his shoulder and his elbow, and he just gets injured. He can't keep it going ever anymore. And now he's in his mid-30s, and, you know, they're not going to get a lot out of him. Well, he plays all out. He does. He gives every effort that's possible for a person or a player to do. And I think fans love him for that. I mean, he, they do, he is but a you fan. know, same thing with Jacob deGrom, who went to Texas, who had a great half season with the Mets, maybe the best ever, but is back, you know, on the injured list and needs uh, reconstructive elbow surgery because he's not a big guy and he's throwing 102 miles an hour and his body can't stand it. Bill, when we buy a, fr- a franchise... I know who we want as a general manager, Duke Goldman. Okay, well, let's say uh, Duke. What might your salary demands be? Um, you know, I just want the market rate. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we leave it there. Duke Goldman and market rate. Perhaps a new new title for this segment, which we otherwise call, we're not going to call it market rate. We're just going to keep calling it talking baseball. Duke Goldman, thank you so very very much. You're the best. Thank you. Appreciate it. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP. There's nothing like being in the same room at the same time, sharing your experiences with other women. At Cancer Connections Breast Cancer Support Group, we can laugh or cry. With our burdens lifted, even for a little while, we can go back to our lives better able to handle dealing with cancer and all it entails. Go to cancer-connection.org to learn more or to donate today. Cancer Connection relies on local donations to make its services free of charge. Northampton Neighbors is free of charge and open to all with a range of social and volunteer opportunities as well as services and support for members 55 and older in the city of Northampton. Need help? Want to help? Join us as a member, a volunteer, or donor. Northampton Neighbors is about more than aging in place. We're about engaging in place, this place. Find us online at northamptonneighbors.org or call us at 413-341-0160. WHMP Northampton and WRSI HD2 Turner's Falls. WHMP.com on Northampton Radio Group Station. It's 10 o'clock. I'm Bill Newman. And we are so lucky. So we have so many guests who uh, have segments where they come weekly or monthly. Um, and they are just, they do such a terrific job. I am always holding my breath in anticipation of talking with Todd Gasto, who comes monthly. He's with the Collaborative for Educational Services. He's the executive director. He's an educator, former superintendent of schools. And he has his a uh, finger on the pulse of what's happening in education in this region and beyond. And so welcome once again to your monthly segment, Todd. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me on, Buzz and Bill. It is our pleasure. Uh, so there is a climate that we're living in, one where um, quite often intolerance and um, the refusal to accept differences among people result in people feeling unsafe and sometimes children feeling unsafe and um, I know that you are very connected to local regional school districts. Um, have you experienced any of that uh, sort of oppressive feeling of unsafety that uh, we see permeating our culture? 
You know, I think there is not a superintendent, principal, or teacher uh, in the United States these days that hasn't uh, felt uh, that way at some point over the you know last four or five years. Um, you know, unfortunately, uh, the dialogue has shifted in this country uh, such that it is directly impacting uh, the environment in our schools. Schools have always tried to create an environment that was safe, that was inclusive, uh, that respected uh, all individuals uh, for who they are. Uh, and, um, you know, now uh, those inclusive practices are um, just generating incredible pushback and vitriol uh, from certain segments of our communities. Are you talking about pushback from parents? Are you talking about pushback from kids, teachers? Who are we talking about? You know, it, it, mostly the, uh, you know, uh, members of the community uh, is where the majority of the pushback comes from. Um, you know, it, although it's beginning to, you know, kids emulate what they see adults do. They emulate uh, behavior and they emulate language. Uh, and so there has been a trick, trickle down effect in many instances um, so that you'll see uh, students kind of projecting this animosity uh, towards uh, people who are different. What does pushback mean? What form does it take? Well, I think an excellent example uh, is what just happened um, the other day in, in Burlington, Massachusetts. Um, you know, here was a situation where they were having a Pride Day event. And Pride is meant to be an inclusive event uh, that celebrates all people and all uh, individuals in the beauty of the uniqueness of people. Uh, and what happened there was uh, a group of middle school students uh, at a middle school Pride event uh, ripped down all of the Pride banners and decorations uh, and started chanting, uh, our pronouns are USA, and acting in an intimidating in, in manner to both students and staff. Uh, and I think, you know, what they are, what they're doing is reflecting the behavior we see at our school committee meetings, uh, you know, in our towns, at, at many public In our areas. Congress. In our Congress, correct. So can you connect this feeling of uh, um, those kids who perpetrated this, kids who are vandals, uh, kids who uh, violate norms, they too are the product of their own experiences. So when you're talking about kids not feeling safe and people not being tolerant, those kids too. You see, that's a product of they're not feeling safe as well. That they they come out and and violate the rights of others. You know, I think you know a lot of this behavior is a response to being threatened or feeling threatened. But it's you know, what are you feeling threatened by? Uh, how are you threatened by an inclusive practice that values all individuals? Uh, you know, what does it take away from you to honor somebody else's rights? Uh, you know, when we think about the practice um, that we have of, uh, you know, uplifting things like uh, Pride Month that celebrates uh, LGBTQ plus individuals, uh, why do we do that? Because historically, we haven't. We've marginalized these groups and we've marginalized these individuals. Uh, we've forced them through fear to not be able to display who we are. And we're trying to shift that culture um, you know, in our schools, uh, in our communities, to say, we value you, we respect you, you are an important part of our community, you don't need to hide who you are. So, Executive Director Todd Gazda of the 
Collaborative for Educational Services, what do administrators, what do teachers do in response to this climate, which is permeating our society? I think the answer is the best they can on a daily basis. Um, you know, teachers and educators and administrators actively strive to promote these act inclusive environments in their schools. This, this isn't indoctrination. Uh, this is teaching kindness, uh, teaching respect, teaching, in, you know, um, an awareness of others. Uh, this is, in, so I think when it's come being attacked, um, at some level, it feels like an attack upon, um, well, it is an attack upon our values. Uh, and I think there, there's a response, but I think it also has a lingering effect, uh, and you're seeing it on the willingness of individuals to enter the profession, because the narrative that's being created uh, against public schools uh, is trending so negative. Todd Gazza, I'm interested in your perspective as an administrator, as a uh, someone who has been in charge of public school systems is whether or not there is more needed in terms of protecting students by way of anti-bullying legislation or policies and the like, because what we're talking about here is bullying, at least writ large. Your thoughts? You know, there was a dramatic change in the Massachusetts bullying laws in 2010. Uh, and, you know, it really forced schools uh, to shine a light on the problem. They had to, schools have to create anti-bullying policies. Correct. They have to have ways in which students can seek redress and seek safety and the light. And, and it's a requirement of every school in the Commonwealth to do that. Question being, does it work? Well, policies don't stop people from doing anything. Um, people can blow right through a policy. Uh, and it's the matter of how we systematically work to, you know, confront the problem. And I think schools have gotten much better in working to address the problem by building a climate and culture uh, where this is unacceptable, where people feel safe, where people feel included. Um, and, uh, you know, the difficulty comes in where... All too often, the word bullying is thrown around in situations where it may not actually be bullying. And that kind of waters down and dilutes the problem when it really is. Well, let me ask you about inclusion, because mm -hmm. uh, we have in this conversation an assumption that inclusion of all persons under the LGBTQIA umbrella, uh, uh, that that is a... Uh, is definitionally and self-evidently a good thing. And I, I do. That said, I can see uh, fundamentalist Christian students mm -hmm. saying, you're excluding me. What about me? And I'm wondering what your reaction to that might be. And so we're not excluding fundamentalist Christian groups and children. Um, you know, we, we live in a society where, um, you know, they are a majority or, you know, a large percentage of our population. And the systems we have in place um, support them already. Uh, and so there are elements uh, that, uh, so they... So within our systems, that is inherently built into everything we do. It's just we're trying to expand that inclusiveness to spend, you know, to encompass historically marginalized groups, uh, and that's, you know, where the pushback comes in. I, I just want to follow Bill's 
question because, Todd Gasman, the, the, the Collaborative for Educational Services, which provides services to school districts in order to promote the very values we're talking about, I hear the word woke. I hear, you know, uh, uh, a Supreme Court that's ready to gut affirmative action because it's racial, it's race-based mm -hmm. and uh, therefore <clears throat> unconstitutional when we're trying to do remedial things to fix old injustices. How does, what can you do to make it easier for administrators and teachers and public schools to confront this in the climate that we're dealing with? You know, I, I think the important thing is to maintain open dialogues and to have these conversations. Um, it, it is tar it's hard. It, these are emotionally charged issues. Um, people's uh, emotions get escalated. It becomes very personal. Uh, and it is the conversations quickly devolve into personal attacks. Uh, and that has a chilling effect on any conversations. You can't bring people together when they're constantly in like defense bunker mode because they're either feeling attacked or on you know on the offensive so that makes it really hard could you tell us whether or not this debate about trans girls in sports has become a uh, flashpoint here in western massachusetts for any sports teams whether that is something that is just a media invention or whether that is actually an issue in local high school sports teams? I have to say I don't personally know much uh, enough. I'm a little bit removed uh, from the day-to-day -day operations. I don't uh, participate or uh, in, I'm not involved with the MIAA, Massachusetts Interscholastic uh, Athletic Association. Um, and so I'm not 100% sure the prevalence. Um, I will say that, you know, transgender athletes make up a very small percentage of the overall student population uh, that participates in our sports. So... Yeah, and transgender athletes who are actually superstars where uh, uh, they somehow affect their athletic ability as even, even a tiny smaller. percentage of a tiny percentage, if at all, in any school. I haven't heard of one school in Western Massachusetts where that has actually been an issue. I have not either. Um, but, you know, I will say eh, we, we, we have a, as I speak on the radio, a media... Uh, that is forced to fill 24 hours a day, seven days a week of content. Uh, and so it does seem to escalate problems more than they used to be or shine more light on things. And it creates a situation you know, where um, educators are working essentially in a fishbowl of public opinion where they're not sure what action they're going to take will generate the next attack uh, and how big it will get. So, uh, so you say, in response to the question, what are you doing to combat this, you said the best we can. So give us an example of what you've done with the superintendents you work with, with the school systems that you work with, in order to confront this, what kinds of actions are being taken in order to confront this, I don't know, this uh, attack on our values. So we have uh, a group within the collaborative, the Joy and Justice team, uh, that actively works with school districts across the Commonwealth of Massachusetts uh, to really do uh, trainings uh, for staff, for students. Uh, and what it, the foundational elements all come down to building relationships. 
Um, it's harder to hate somebody when you're you're looking at them. It's it's harder to have those conversations uh, when you know the individual uh, and when you can you know gain an understanding of who they are and you know what they bring to the table and how they're they're coming to these things. Um, you know, I think the advent of social media, uh, this idea I can hide behind my keyboard and type whatever I want and send it out into the ether, um, has really just had an effect upon our communities and conversations, making them much more adversarial. High schools are always, have always been uh, filled with cliques. They're the in crowd and the out crowd and the jocks and the, and the, uh, the, the super, the super, uh, the brainiacs, the farmers, right? <laughs> so, is today different? Not really. No, I mean these these cliques and divisions still remain. I think there's a more conscious effort on the part of uh, educators now to uh, kind of break down those divides uh, in order to uh, help promote acceptance. Uh, I think there's a much more targeted uh, focus on bullying uh, and addressing uh, bullying situations when they occur. Um, and so I think there has been a systematic change in a real focus on the importance of climate and culture within a school system uh, because that will, creating those uh, learning environments where students feel safe, will actually increase learning and you know, promote ac academic outcomes. This is such an important conversation. We're going to continue with the conversation with Executive Director Todd Gazda of the Collaborative for Educational Services about our schools, our kids, well, our future. We'll be right back. More Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. Tag your it. Tom Hartman, weekdays at noon. Tom Hartman Program, your home for the resistance, commentary, conversation, and common cause. Join me, Tom Hartman, every weekday from noon to 3, right here on WHMP. 101-5-1400-WHMP-WHMP-WHMP-WHMP-WHMP-WHMP-WHMP-WHMP-WHMP-WHMP-WHMP-WHMP-WHMP-WHMP-WHMP-WHMP-WHMP-WHMP-WHM
Fort Hill is locally owned and operated. They're part of the community, and they guarantee the work they do every time. Trust Fort Hill Collision Services, Route 9, Amherst, and online at forthillcs.com. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. We continue our conversation with Todd Gastas, the Executive Director of the Collaborative for Educational Services, who began our conversation today by talking about an incident in the Burlington school systems where LGBTQ community members and students were targeted by other students. Apparently not physical uh, fighting, but genuine targeting. And I'm wondering what the response was and should be in that situation with response, the response to, well, both for both groups of students. You know, in these situations, and this is really still new, uh, so right now the administration is doing their investigation uh, to kind of uh, find out exactly what happened. Um, but then I think proceeding from there, will there be discipline, likely, particularly when it comes to destruction of property and vandalism, uh, like what occurred? Um, you know, and I think that will then, any discipline that is handed out will also then quickly transition into some type of dialogue, uh, some type of structured uh, conversation, uh, some way to work to recognize what happened, uh, to let people know this is not okay, but then to continue to learn from it so that they can do everything possible to make sure it doesn't happen again. Well, it's not going to be a surprise to the kids that destroying property is not okay. Correct. But it will be quite, I think, informative, perhaps educational, to somehow have a process in place in which the kids who were the perpetrators actually can come out of this wiser. And I'm wondering how a school system does that. You know, we only have the kids six hours a day, uh, and that is one of the challenges. Whatever conversations we have within the walls of our building, um, you know, at the end of the day, um, the kids leave, and they're subject to whatever influences outside um, our walls. And the Anti-Defamation League uh, just tracked, they just issued a report, and found a 40% increase in hate, incidents of hate. that could be harassment, it mm. could be actual violence against uh, per people, but uh, that that's from home, right? I mean, you know, they're learning. Or communities, or online. Um, you or know, media, or television, or radio, or uh, social media, or... Exactly, take your pick. Um, and that's, you know, as educators and administrators particularly, they're sitting there, you know, I heard somebody to... to described, uh, a superintendent said the other day, and I thought it was a perfect description. I'm not sitting here waiting for the other shoe to drop. I'm, it's raining shoes. Uh, and I think that's a really telling thing. It's that it's not when the incident, it's not if an incident is going to happen in their district, it's when. And so there's that constant feeling of apprehension to say, when is a swastika going to appear on my bathroom wall? When is, uh, you know, a student or a um, community member going to issue hate speech towards a member of our school community? Um, and so there's a general apprehension. There's also an apprehension among educators about even speaking on these topics, um, not because they don't want to, they, and they recognize that they have to, 
Um, but there's a fear they're going to say something wrong, mm. inadvertently. Um, even as I sit here today, uh, having this conversation, uh, and over the past two years as an le a educational leader and uh, leading the collaborative who is involved in this work, I myself am not an expert in this area. Uh, and so I worry about inadvertently saying something that is insensitive, uh, that causes uh, hurt to somebody else. Um, because one, I don't want to do it. That's the first thing, you know, I, I don't, but the second is we have a tendency to even these days attack our allies. Uh, and so that makes it tougher, um, and more challenging for administrators as they, you know, walk through the day, uh, apprehensive, uh, about, you know, how to do their jobs. Um, so it, it does create a situation where it has a chilling effect on the number of people wanting to become teachers, number of teachers wanting to become principals, number of principals wanting to become superintendents. Um, it's hard to lead in the public school system these days. Uh, it really is. That is incredibly frightening, I think. Uh, by the way, uh, as parents of two educators who care deeply about education and their children, I know that I hear this too often, that the, the climate is just not favorable. And our way out, our hope in the future, is that in fact, these values will be, you know, sort of reclaim their place in our society by virtue of good education. So I don't know, where do we go? You're the expert here, take us where we're supposed to be going. We need to keep having the conversations. We need to have the conversations even when they're uncomfortable. Uh, we have to seek to understand each other. Um, and I think, um, but you know, there are hard lines where hate speech is not acceptable. Threatening people is not acceptable. Um, you know, I, we have to come back to a time when we are able to have those difficult conversations without that conversation just saying that person is evil because I disagree with them. I mean, that's where we straight jump to right now. If you disagree with me, you're evil. So Todd Gaston, go back to what you were just saying, which is schools have students about six hours a day. Schools have obligations to teach some core subjects, and they are important. Leave aside all the questions about standardized testings and high-stakes testing and uh, requirements and the like, but there is a very significant part of the school day that is going to be allocated towards teaching uh, uh, curriculum. And I want to know where these conversations are supposed to happen. Do they happen as part of the curriculum? Do they happen somewhere else? Are they organized by the school? Or there's something more amorphous that is, needs to be formed into part of what you call this culture of a school? The culture of a school needs to be embedded in everything that school does. Uh, and so it's, it's a recognition on the part of the staff that every interaction they have with a student, however quick, uh, however brief, is meaningful and can impact that student uh, in their day, in their week, in their life. You never know what conversation you're going to have with an individual that will touch 
that individual, uh, either positively or negatively. But there needs to be an awareness of our interactions. Um, and as a building administrator, we try to build those things into uh, every interaction that we have so that we set norms for behavior, uh, we set norms for interactions, uh, we set norm for expectations of what we expect from members of our school communities. These are all important elements. So it's not a, a, a one-and-done type of, um, you know, um, assembly or something like that. We do do things like assemblies and bring in outside speakers to speak on these topics, but that's not enough. There has to be um, core values and core beliefs uh, that kind of engages the whole school population. What a great place to leave it. Todd Gasta, thank you so much. Um, I know we always benefit from conversation with you. We have to have these dialogues continue. And we have to restore those norms, those values, which we're talking about. And, you know, our hope is in our children. Mm. And uh, you, as an educator and the people that you work with, uh, make that hope real. So thank you for all you do. Thank you for joining us today. we got a lot to think about. Always my pleasure. We're going to be back. We're going to be talking with Norman Solomon, the American journalist, the media critic, the activist, and his new book right after this. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. The current state of housing in Northampton is the topic of discussion at a meeting at City Council Chambers tonight. The meeting is the launch of the Municipal Engagement Initiative, which was created to work with residents to change the conversation and support local efforts in favor of more affordable housing. According to the agenda posted by Northampton Housing Partnership, the group plans to share data about the current state of housing in Northampton and some of the barriers that building new housing faces in the city. The meeting begins at 6 p.m. and will also allow participants through Zoom. For the first time in 15 years, Holyoke Police Department is expected to have 92 patrol officers, up from 82 officers typically. Holyoke Mayor Josh Garcia said the police department is expanding to address a persistent understaffing issue, which has forced officers to work excessive amounts of overtime and were outlined in the recent audit of the police department. We've put a lot of attention and focus on scaling up our police department while also taking care of other needs that were identified in that report as far as whether if it's capital related, training related. Again, I think that by the fall time is going to start feeling very, very different as far as quality of life issues are concerned. The mayor said the police department is also working to fix their record keeping and complaint filing systems to make it easier for citizens to file complaints. When you start taking it apart, there's much more than what's being reported, and it just becomes a little sensational, in my opinion. The mayor said the city will continue to assess and improve its police and public safety departments, and that complicated problems can take time to solve. For today, it'll be mostly cloudy. Chance for showers this morning, high 78 to 82. Tonight, partly cloudy, overnight lows 54 to 58. And the out for Wednesday, partly sunny. Chance for afternoon showers and thunderstorms, highs in the upper 70s. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Adam Stremko on 101.5 WHMP. Some people make insurance sound so simple. You know, just call 1-800-INSURANCE. We'll save you money. Sounds pretty simple. So you call, give your credit card, and you're insured. They're hoping you'll never call back. Hoping you'll never have a claim. Because that's when insurance isn't so simple. In fact, it can get outright complicated. So many insurance claims have some little thing, or not so little thing, that ends up with a difference in what the insurance company thinks they owe you and what you think you should get. 
Maybe that nice person who signed you up at 1-800-INSURANCE will work it out for you. Or make Whalen Insurance your local insurance agent. When we sign you up, don't be surprised if our rates are lower than the 800 number. We'll get every available discount for you. We'll get you the right coverage. And if you ever need help with a claim, our door is open. Whalen Insurance. Call us for a quote. 586-1000. In partnership with Mafre Insurance. Whalen Insurance. Local people. Local service. Local insurance. What's cooking at River Valley Co-op? Here's avid eater, grocery shopper, and co-op member Bill Newman. Local farms are welcoming spring to the co-op. Asparagus popping up and ready to eat in bunches. In the co-op meat department, local chicken from Reed Farm, house-made brats and sausage, everything to kick off grilling season. In the co-op cheese department, welcome the maple season with maple-washed Willoughby, a delicious local cheese washed with Vermont maple liqueur. River Valley Co-op, wild about local. Everyone is welcome. You're a nonprofit doing good work in the community. You want to let people know? That's easy. Talk to Hannah. Tell her you want to have a PSA on WHMP. If you're a community nonprofit, WHMP helps you communicate. Have an event? Need donations? Volunteers? Talk to Hannah. She'll help you craft a message and we'll run it at no cost. Hi, it's Hannah. Email me at hward at whmp.com or call me at 586-7400. WHMP News, Information, and the Arts, and messages from community nonprofits. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And welcome back to the show. We are very lucky um, in this segment to have Norman Solomon, who has uh, just authored yet another book. I think he's an author of about a dozen books. This book is called War Made Invisible, How America Hides the Human Toll of Its Military Machine. And I think the book is just coming out. Norman, is the book out yet? Uh, It's being published today. Today is a day. Today is a big day. So this book, um, which argues that we need a different approach to defending the public interest, to our understanding of justice, to our understanding of war. You have been involved in in anti-war movements, in social justice, in environmental movements um, since, I think, the 60s. uh, You've tried to make us all smarter and tried to highlight um, the mistakes that we make when we go to war. Could you tell us about what this book is about and what the message is you're trying to convey? Well, the real focus is sort of summed up in the subtitle, How America Hides the Human Toll of Its Military Machine. And it really goes to the basic question, and I remember in civics class, as many of us were, I was taught that democracy involves the informed consent of the governed. But when it comes to U.S. foreign policy and war in particular, I I think it's fair to say that we have the uninformed consent of the governed, which is not really meaningful consent at all. There's uh, so much secrecy, so much propaganda and deception that historically, whether the Vietnam War era or this one, um, has continued to give us our own fog of war. Uh, So I, I call the book War Made Invisible because, especially with the increasing reliance on air power and fewer and fewer U.S. troops on the ground in the war situations, we have um, had so many of the human results of U.S. warfare more and more hidden from us uh, as reliance on bombing and drones and so forth has really come to the fore. 
I find it interesting that you use the word fog, and, and I know you write to lifting the fog. Uh, you, you say that there's a fog that obscures what actually militarism is all about, both far away militarism and what happens here at home. Could you speak to that fog? Well, really um, obscures uh, the consequences of what Dwight Eisenhower so long ago called the military-industrial complex, which has gotten much stronger since uh, when he made that speech in 1961. Whether you live in western Massachusetts or anywhere else in the United States, uh, there are so many communities with a lack of adequate health care, education, housing, neonatal care, elderly care. And meanwhile, we have the military budget continuing to go through the roof. Uh, President Biden asked for a bit over uh, $800 billion uh, Pentagon budget. That wasn't enough for the House and Senate. was raised even more. Uh, Martin Luther King Jr. called this not only, in his words, the madness of militarism, but he also referred to it as, and this is his words, a demonic suction tube that was siphoning away just vital resources from people in our own country who were suffering unnecessarily as a result. And another aspect of the book I really focus on is what happens to people at the other end of U.S. firepower? We know... uh, through media coverage that U.S. soldiers, um, they've been injured, uh, they've died, they've left loved ones. There's a lot of, uh, been a lot of coverage of that suffering. There now has been very appropriate coverage of the suffering of civilians in Ukraine due to the horrible Russian war on that country. Uh, But when the United States was the invading country in Afghanistan, in Iraq. As I quantify in the book, the coverage was very sparse in terms of the uh, suffering of the people who, as a result, uh, went through such trauma and injury and death uh, in their own countries after the U.S. invasions. It's it's really telling. I think that you quote the uh, Brown University's costs of war. It's like 900,000 people have been killed in war we're talking not just Afghanistan, I don't want to say just, but just Afghanistan and Iraq, but in Pakistan and Syria and Yemen, 900,000 people in the last 20 years since 9-11 happened. Is, is, do I have that right? Yes, you do, and it's stunning that so much good work has been done by that cost of war project at Brown University, and very little of that information has gotten out to the public, not dealt with by members of Congress, Uh, not part of the public discourse. And the number that we're talking about of close to one million uh, deaths due to, as the study shows, the U.S. uh, so-called war on terrorism in the last 20 years, that's just a fraction because several times that many have died indirectly through destruction of uh, water sources, um, hygienic uh, institutions, resources of all kinds in the infrastructure of those countries. So really we have several million people who have died because of this uh, U.S. war launched in the fall of 2001 in the name of fighting terrorism. Yeah, and under false pretenses. We are talking with Norman Solomon, whose book, War Made Invisible, How America Hides the Human Toll of Its Military Machine. You have long, you are a journalist, and yet 
you've long been a media critic, arguing that people remain uninformed <laughs> because the media is not holding up its end of the bargain, the constitutional bargain, which we guaranteed them freedom to inform us. So what does your book try to do to highlight the media's role in keeping us uninformed? Well, the focus really is that the relationship between the mass media, with exceptions, and the U.S. government, uh, that relationship has been very unhealthy. And as practical matters, the mass media on the whole uh, have functioned much more like a fourth branch of government than a fourth estate. And so the requisite skepticism that independent journalism should always retain has been uh, largely uh, collapsed into a sort of go-along-to-get-along argument over tactics, but not underlying questions of U.S. foreign policy. One example would be that while there is some quibbling and arguments from U.S. media about when and how and where the U.S. government should attack and invade another country, the prerogative of the U.S., the more fundamental question of does the U.S. government have the right to violate international law and invade other countries on its own say-so? Uh, that is rarely debated in our corporate-run media. Yeah, and, and, and you, in your book, the two things jumped out at me. One, you make this argument that, that the entire U.S. media establishment sort of implicitly gives a full-throated support, if not explicitly, explicitly um, to war, like the U.S. attack on Afghanistan and early October of 2001, but you go on, that's chilling enough. But then you say that we've been conditioned to just accept ongoing wars without ever really knowing what they're doing to the people that you're describing. That is really frightening to me. Um, could you embellish, embellish that, please? I think that is the theme that emerged as I was working on the book, most of all because it's hidden in plain sight. It's so much in front of us and part of our uh, daily zeitgeist, that we don't give it a second thought, and really it's rarely even talked about out loud that de facto in U.S. Uh, media and uh, mass culture and political discourse such as it is along Pennsylvania Avenue in Washington, there are, in context of U.S. wars, two tiers of grief. There's the one that is very real, uh, the U.S. Uh, soldiers uh, who were maimed and killed and the grief of their loved ones. And then there are the people at the other end of U.S. firepower, those who have died because of U.S. military actions in Libya, in Syria, in Iraq and Afghanistan. And they exist tacitly but very concretely in U.S. media and politics in a different tier of grief, a decidedly secondary one to the point that they're relegated to the status of non-persons. And uh, without getting um, uh, hopefully at all uh, sanctimonious about this, this bespeaks of a kind of a spiritual um, illness that has set in. You know, Martin Luther King um, talked about how, in his words, a nation that year after year is spending more on military affairs than on social uplift uh, was, he said, approaching, again in his words, spiritual death. Well, that was back in 1967 
We have enormous expenditures for the military. We have, as we just saw again, with this uh, ceiling on the debt deal, uh, more cutbacks on um, matters such as feeding hungry families. This is a society way off the track, and if we're going to turn this around, we first need to, I believe, acknowledge what is usually um, hidden from plain sight, and that's why I wrote War Made Invisible. I, I highlighted a quote of Martin Luther King Jr. from your book. which says, when scientific power outruns moral power, we end up with guided missiles and misguided men. This is a really important book. We are talking with Norman Solomon. The book is War Made Invisible, How America Hides the Human Toll of Its Military Machine. We're going to continue that conversation right after this. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. Got chronic joint pain? Not having success with steroids, but trying to avoid surgery? Well, thankfully, there's a better way, and now it's available here from the medical professionals at QC Kinetics. I'm talking about new, advanced regenerative medicine treatments that can restore and repair damaged tissue in your bad joints, providing lasting relief with no drugs, no surgery, and no downtime. This is an all-natural way to use highly concentrated healing properties from your own body to give you lasting relief. QC Kinetics is the nation's leader in precision regenerative medicine with over 100 clinics across America and literally thousands of satisfied patients. If you've got joint pain due to arthritis, knee pain, hip pain, shoulder pain, don't just think the old ways of dealing with pain are the only ways. You need to learn more about these new regenerative options that can change your life. Call QC Kinetics now. It's a free consultation with local medical professionals. Call 413-992-5450. That's 413-992-5450. 413-992-5450. Are you or someone you care about struggling with mental health or substance use? The Behavioral Health Helpline is here for you. Call 833-773-2445 and we'll work with you to find the help you need. Free, open 24-7 and available in over 200 languages. No insurance needed. 833-773-2445. A service of the Commonwealth of Massachusetts operated by the Massachusetts Behavioral Health Partnership. Every month across the Pioneer Valley, one in three families struggles to buy diapers. That's why the Northampton Radio Group is teaming with the United Way of the Franklin and Hampshire Region in support of their annual diaper drive. Stop by the United Way of Franklin and Hampshire Region offices in Northampton and Greenfield or at any Leo Auto Group dealership on King Street and donate diapers throughout the month of June. By donating to the diaper drive, you can help keep area children healthy and families secure. This message brought to you by the Leo Auto Group, the United Way of the Franklin and Hampshire Region, and the Northampton Radio Group. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. We continue our conversation with Norman Solomon, American journalist, media critic, and activist whose new book is How America Hides the Human Toll of Its Military Machine. I would appreciate your perspective on how, for lack of a better term, a just war plays into America's military machine. In other words, we have an enormous investment in Ukraine and Ukraine's military at this point. Most most people in this country support that military effort. And I'm wondering whether that kind of support for what is viewed as a just war somehow transforms itself into uh, a human toll of a military machine that goes unappreciated. Your view of that, please? 
Well, really what we are suffering from, I think, is a failure of a single standard of human rights and international law. I mean, it's either the United States stands for the principle that one country shouldn't be violating international law by invading another nation or not. But in Orwellian fashion, we have been encouraged to put back on the shelf any concept that isn't convenient to the military-industrial complex at any time. So quite justifiably, there's condemnation of what Russia has been doing in Ukraine, but um, erased from history, often from the same mouths of people who supported the U.S. invasions of Afghanistan and Iraq, is a reality that the U.S. flagrantly uh, violated international and did that. And uh, by the way, have killed far more people uh, in those two countries than Russia has has done um, in Ukraine. So people are going to have varying views about what a just war may or may not be. But uh, to keep moving the uh, goalposts around at convenience of the warfare state is uh, really a corrupting approach. Well, where does that leave you with regard to the... U.S. military support for Ukraine. And uh, your book is, of course, uh, War Made Invisible. In some ways, the United States military uh, intervention is invisible in Ukraine, but, well, not to those who are Ukrainians who are fighting and using that equipment. Well, we should be candid that this is a huge boondoggle, enormous profits. The more this war goes on, the more profitable it is. Uh, for uh, U.S. military contractors, even during World War II, then-Senator Harry Truman crusaded against war profiteering. We barely hear that uh, term used now, and it should be. There is also the question of whether diplomacy should be on the table or not. It's clear from the bipartisan near consensus along Pennsylvania Avenue that diplomacy has become almost a dirty word. Uh, That especially in a conflict that, as a practical matter, involves the two nuclear superpowers is potentially suicidal, not only for uh, the people in Ukraine, but the people on the planet, uh, seven or eight billion people whose lives are at stake in the case of potential nuclear war. So there's a lot of self-serving rhetoric coming out of Washington. I think that uh, my book really makes clear how The media coverage of the suffering in Ukraine uh, has been very good, but is really based on media and political hypocrisy in the United States because the civilians who have suffered so much from U.S. interventions and continue to suffer are really off the media map in terms of anything near the same kind of empathetic coverage. We just need a single standard, and uh, that is stunningly difficult to achieve in our society. The book we should note is War Made Invisible, How America Hides the Human Toll of Its Military Machine. Buzz? Oh, Norman Solomon, I, I want to turn our attention. We could talk about what you're talking about forever, and that wouldn't be enough time to cover it fairly. But I, today is a, an important day. Today, the former 45th president of the United States, Donald Trump, is scheduled to be arraigned this afternoon at a federal courthouse in Miami. Um, he was indicted last week on 37 counts related to uh, classified documents that were recovered from his Mar-a-Lago uh, estate. Um, these charges include willful retention of national defense information. How does that interface, or does it, with the theme of your 
book? Well, as it happens, um, by chance, um, War Made Invisible as a book uh, is published today, the same day uh, that Trump is being arraigned. And my book goes into some detail about the case of somebody else who uh, underwent prosecution under the Espionage Act. Uh, Trump is facing 31 of the counts that he's charged with under the Espionage Act. And uh, Daniel Hale, a U.S. Air Force veteran who was a whistleblower on the drone program, is now in federal prison for basically telling the public the truth through the news media by leaking classified documents that showed that the vast majority of those killed by U.S. drone strikes in Afghanistan were civilians. And his reward for that is a 45-month prison sentence in a high-security federal prison. One of the characteristics of the Espionage Act is that the defendant is not allowed to talk about why they did what they did. So a public service, public interest defense is not allowed in these cases. It doesn't really matter to Trump because if he claimed that he did what he did with classified documents was in any way in the public interest, he'd be laughed out of court. Whereas Daniel Hale potentially could have been acquitted by a jury if he'd been allowed to talk about it. Well, we are going to spend a fair amount of time in, on this show talking about the use of the Espionage Act because the left is celebrating the indictment of Donald Trump, and there are reasons for that, of course. But I think what is getting lost in the vindictiveness of getting back at Trump is the use of the Espionage Act, which is fundamentally really dangerous for the judicial system, the legal system, and the political system. I'd appreciate your thoughts about that. Well, I think the intent really matters. Um, we have the competing harms principle in uh, law that if you were to uh, break down the door of a house that has a big no trespassing sign to uh, save the life of a child in a burning attic, that that would be um, allowed and an a, uh, acceptable defense. It really matters what your intent is. And the intent of the drone whistleblowers, for instance, is to have the informed consent of the governed and have democracy meaningfully function during a warfare state, whereas uh, Trump is apparently, according to the indictment, totally involved in self-aggrandizement as a goal. Well, that's, I think, clear from what the press reports have been. But I wonder at the end of the day when the Trump conviction is affirmed on appeal, what that's going to do the state of the law and the use and the acceptance well, of the use of the Espionage Act again. Well, the Espionage Act is 106 years old, and it's, it's, it's not even creaky. It's completely antiquated and has been misused constantly. So whatever the merits of the case under Trump, certainly um, that law has been abused very frequently. And this may be part of the acceptance of the use of the law going forward. I mean, that's my concern. It's a valid yeah, well, concern. We did. Point because, Go ahead, Norman. Yeah, yeah. It is. It is a concern. It is a concern. Yeah. There's so much to talk about. We could talk about Chelsea Manning. We could talk about Edward Snowden. Um, we have to have you back, Norman Solomon. But right now. Oh, we, I would love to come back. Oh, and we'd love to have you back. The book by Norman Solomon, is War Made Invisible, 
How America Hides the Human Toll of Its Military Machine. It has been released today. You can get it in your independent bookshops. I really thank you for writing the book, for spending a lifetime trying to bring these issues to the forum, Norman. Hey, thank you very much. It is our pleasure. Everyone else, thank you so much for joining us today. These topics are really important. Uh, we love to talk the talk. We all should be mindful to walk the walk. Have a good day. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP. Here comes the money. You could be one word away from $1,000. It's a grand in the hand on WHMP. Listen each weekday for the $1,000 keyword at around 815, 1215, and 415. When you hear the keyword, just go to whmp.com and enter it for a shot at $1,000. You have until midnight to enter the keyword of the day. It's a grand in the hand on WHMP. Complete rules and details on whmp.com. Want to know more about local history, literature, and education? Hilltown Families bi-monthly Learning Ahead Cultural Itineraries offer an easy way to delve into Western Mass culture and traditions. These new seasonal itineraries are produced in collaboration with a humanities scholar and community education expert, offering ways for self-directed teens and lifelong learners to engage in learning that helps shape a sense of place. Funded by a year-long grant from Mass Humanities, WHMP, you can download Northampton and WRSI HD2 Turner's Falls, whmp.com, a Northampton Radio Group station.